I enjoy reading about the origins of different words that we use. It's called etymology. Where did this word come from? What, where did this word, how did this word get introduced into the English language? I just find it fascinating to see how our language develops and how we import words from different cultures. There's a word I learned this last week, and the original word comes from Middle English from a very, very long time ago, and it is the Middle English word bugie. And it's not bougie, that's a different thing, but bugie. And bugie, a bugie is something frightening. That sounds vague, doesn't it? But it does sound a little scary. It's just something frightening is a bugie. So what is a bugie? Well, it's something frightening. If there's a wolf on the edge of town and it's gobbling up the flocks, that's a bugie. If you're out hiking through the wilderness and you come across a bear, that's, that's a bugie. If you've got a big, terrible storm coming in over town and, and, and it's rattling, the, the thunder and lightning is rattling everything, that's a bugie. Somewhere in the mid-1800s, that word ended up meaning the devil or a, a demonic em, entity. So that's, that's bugie as well. That's something frightening. And then from there, it came into our modern language, our modern conversation, and our modern fears. And today, we have a different word. We talk about the boogeyman. We talk about the boogeyman. And there's always a boogeyman out there. There's always something frightening. There's always a boogeyman to keep you in line. Maybe, maybe your parents were like mine and they told you if you didn't go to bed in on time, if you didn't eat your vegetables, if you didn't behave, the boogeyman was going to come get you. And maybe you're like me. You laid there in bed one night and went, well, where's he at? And the boogeyman never never showed up. And you started to think, well, maybe there isn't really a boogeyman. But no, no, there's always a boogeyman. Someone always wants to have a boogeyman out there. There are still boogeymen out there to frighten us, to manipulate us. If you watch the news, the news always has a boogeyman out there. Someone scary that we've got to worry about. If you read the headlines, you look at posts that get shared over and over again online. Somebody wants you to be afraid of something. Someone wants you mad about something. Somebody is telling you there is a boogeyman out there to send you running from your faith in God, from the peace that you know in His presence, from the love that you know that God has for you. Psalm 11, page 400 and. 52, if you want to follow along in one of those blue Bibles in front of you. Psalm 11 is David's response to boogeymen. Because there were boogeymen out there for David as well. Those that wanted to use fear and anger to manipulate even David. And so David begins Psalm 11 with a, an expression of trust in God. But before the first verse is even over, they're already throwing boogeymen at him, telling him what he needs to be afraid of. David starts off with this very confident statement in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. So how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted an arrow to the strings to shoot in the dark the upright at heart. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? You hear it in the final question, don't you? What can the righteous do? You hear the anxiety and the panic in that question. Oh no! What are we going to do? 
But the question's already been answered in verse 1. And the answer is that David stands firm. In the Lord I take refuge. There's always a boogeyman out there. Media has boogeymen. Preachers have boogeymen. You find some preachers that'll tell you all about the boogeyman that you've got to be worried about. Politicians have boogeymen. Pundits have boogeymen. Even soap companies have boogeymen. Ladies, do you remember Ring Around the Collar? There's a boogeyman. They told us we had to be afraid that our collars weren't clean enough and that Ring Around the Collar never killed anybody. You don't have to worry about it. But it all reflects the reality that if they can get you angry enough or if they can get you scared enough, they can sell you anything. They can get you to rally behind their cause. They can get you to buy their soap or whatever it is that they might be selling. And in the meantime, God's people, we instead of standing firm, we waver between seeking refuge and, and worrying. Should we, should we seek refuge? Should we worry? What can the righteous do? So the options that David considers in Psalm 11 are the very same options that you and I have available to us today. When you and I see a threat to our faith, what can we do? Well, we could flee. We could run away. You notice David starts out again with a very firm stance in his faith. Verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. He is going to stand firm. He is going to trust God's presence. He is going to know God's peace. He's going to know that God is near him, but he immediately, immediately a boogeyman speaks to David. He's never identified. In fact, you never see who it is that's causing these questions for David, but, but he is heard. David responds to the challenge. He's incredulous at the idea of abandoning his faith. David says, how can you, how can you, whoever this boogeyman is, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright of heart. Flee. Flee from your refuge in God's presence. Flee from your trust in His care. Allow your fear to remove you. Allow your fear to motivate you instead of your faith. And you know, it's, it's not like David isn't given good reason to flee. David's given good reason to flee. Reason that might cause any one of us to run from God's care. Again, verse 2, Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark, the upright of heart. Did you notice it says they shoot in the dark? They shoot from the shadows. Some of your Bibles might say, one thing I've noticed about those who use fear to manipulate us is they may point to a boogeyman. They may point to an enemy and tell us that the boogeyman is out there, but you never see exactly who it is that's manipulating us. You never see who it is that's pulling the strings, inspiring fear. You don't know who it is that's shooting from the shadows. There was a, there was a newscaster years ago named Eric Severide. Some of you might remember Eric Severide. Eric Severide, many, many years ago, said, the biggest business in America is not steel, automobiles, or television. It is the manufacture, refinement, and distribution of anxiety. I don't think Eric Severide had any idea just how right he was, because one, we don't make TVs anymore here. We don't make very many cars here. Or the other industries have failed, but boy, they're still cranking out anxiety. 
They are still telling you what it is to be afraid of. Fear sells, and ultimately what it sells is us. We become the product that the fear sells. Our fears can cause us to run, to abandon our faith, to abandon our trust in God. But that's the hope here, that, that David will flee. There's a reason why the most often repeated command in the Bible is fear not. The most often repeated command in the Bible is fear not because God knows how fear can be used against us to control us. Other people know how we can be controlled with fear as well. And again, I hear it from politicians. I hear it from preachers. I hear people telling you who you need to be afraid of, what you need to be afraid of, and where you need to run. And yet again, the Word of God comes back again and again. Fear not. Stand firm. Find your refuge in me. So for David, fear was not an option. There was another option that confronts David's faith and still confronts ours also. We may not flee, but we could fight. The challenge of David's boogeyman culminates there in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's the threat, isn't it? That's the threat that the very bedrock of your faith, the foundation of your faith, might be destroyed. There are whole ministries out there that are designed to do nothing but get you worried about the foundations of our faith being destroyed. There are churches that are built trying to convince you to be mad because someone's trying to take your faith away from you. They want you angry. They want you fighting mad. They want you buying whatever it is they're selling. They want you buying their books. There's a group of us here right now that are reading a book called Unoffendable by a man named Brant Hansen. Unoffendable. Brant challenges this idea that you and I have some kind of right to be angry. We have the right to, to righteous anger. We don't. In the book, he cites a study that was done on Twitter. I guess we have to call it X now. I don't know for sure, but a study that was done on Twitter about how fast anger travels online. They didn't need to do that study, did they? You've seen it. You've seen how fast anger travels online. I can tell you, you can write something inspiring. You can write something positive. You can write something motivational and, and, and something that's going to lift people up. And you'll get a few shares and you'll get a few likes. But boy, you write something that's going to get people angry. And that anger will travel around the world at the speed of light. And it's not just social media. We can't just say, well, that's how that works. No, it's everywhere. Anger gets attention, and people know if they can get you angry, they can get your attention. David's challenge is to get angry. The foundations of the faith are being destroyed. Are they? Have they? My Bible tells me that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. My Bible tells me that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. David hears this call to fight, and he responds with faith that God's the one who'll do the fighting for him. He responds in faith that God's the one who has judgment. Verses 4 through 6, the Lord is in his holy temple, David says. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. He sees the boogeyman in the shadows. He knows who it is. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. Who is it that rains down coals? It's God. Okay, let him do that. 
After all, he's the only one that can make any claim to a righteous anger. When it comes to vengeance, God's vengeance is far worse than anything you and I could put out. So we could flee, we could fight, but no, David stands firm and we should stand firm. We cannot flee in fear. We cannot fight out of anger. The only option for God's people is the one that David started with. When God is your refuge, your faith is firm. Challenges have been thrown at David. You need to run, David. You need to fight, David. But David's confidence in God is unwavering. It's still there just as, the, as it was in the beginning. In that first verse, in the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I find my place of protection. I find my place of peace. Protection from those who would harm me. Peace. Peace with myself even. Peace with my own motives. Verse 3 asks the question, what can the righteous do? And the final verse, verse 7, brings the ultimate answer. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold His face. When you find your refuge in God, you are free to serve Him. Empowered by His Spirit. You are free to love others. You are free to forgive hurts. You are free to care for those who are wounded. You're even free to care for those who are doing the wounding. He loves righteous deeds, David says. I can't hear that. He loves righteous deeds without going back again to Micah 6.8. We spent a few months in Micah at the beginning of the year. Remember Micah 6.8? He has told you. God has already told you what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It is so much harder to walk with Him when you are being told to run because of your fears. It is harder to walk with Him when fear motivates you, when anger has you fighting. Dallas Willard once said, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. David says, the Lord loves your righteous deeds. And when you take refuge in Him, you have the promise that you get to behold His face. There's a lot of noise in our world. There's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of noise in the media. There's a lot of noise online. And there's a lot of noise coming from churches too, from ministries too, from Christians too. Not all the noise is worth listening to. They're selling fear to get people motivated. They're selling anger to get the attention of those around us and uh, those online. But the upright are those who hold firm to their faith, the ones They are the ones with the promise, the promise of God's attention. The upright shall behold His face. When God is your refuge, your faith is firm. So what does that look like? What's it look like to take refuge in the Lord? It looks like not giving in to fear. Not letting fear motivate you. It looks like not firing back in anger. It looks like holding firm to the character of Jesus. Those are the righteous deeds that we do. And letting that character be seen in your life and while fear and anger get a lot of attention, there is no promise in fear and anger. The promise we have is found in Jesus. The promise we have is found in seeing Him face to face. Let Him be your refuge. Let Jesus be your refuge. There's always a boogeyman out there. There's always something frightening. First John 4, verse 4 tells me, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. 
So when someone wants you afraid, when you read someone something, when you hear something, when you see something where, where someone wants you afraid, just stop and ask, what do they have to gain by getting me afraid? What are they going to get out of me being afraid? And when someone tries to get you angry, stop and ask the question, who do they want me to trust instead of God? If they want me angry, who do they want me to trust instead of God? And remember, in the Lord I take refuge. He loves my righteous deeds. And someday I get to behold His face. Brenda's going to come. And she's going to lead us up to our communion time. And she's going to share a story about a friend of hers, how a friend of hers did not give in to fear or anger. In a moment that would have sent the rest of us running and fighting, he trusted in the Lord who was his refuge. When we first went to Congo, it was called Zaire then, um, just about a month before we were coming home after being there for three years, um, someone was going to live in our home while we were in the States. So we were packing things up from the house out to an outside building and putting them in barrels so they'd have room for their things. So we're going back and forth, back and forth, um, and finally we quit about midnight. We went to bed, and as happens in lots of relationships, I heard the noise first, and I said, Ed, there's something going on. So I didn't wait for him to get up. I got up and went to the kitchen window, and our yard had maybe 20 thieves in the yard. And while I'm looking out the window, I see them pick up a barrel lid that the Zamu, that's a night watchman, um, his name's Mungazi, and he had a fire built on a barrel. I saw them pick it up and dump it on his head, and then I saw somebody bring up their machete to cut his head off. So I ran back to Ed and said, they're killing Mungazi. So Ed jumps out of bed, and we couldn't get out the front door because there were too many locks on the front door. So he went to the back door, and the door jammed, and it wouldn't come open. So he's just pounding on it, and finally, with all the commotion, the neighbors woke up. And back then, the thieves didn't have guns like they do now. They just had machetes. So when the neighbors started waking up, they started throwing rocks, and finally, there was so much commotion that the thieves took off. And then we went out, and Mugazi was running around and around the house calling for us to wake up. Um, and he told us that when they came into the yard, they told him if he was quiet, they wouldn't kill him. Well, you need a little bit of background on Mugazi. Whenever Ed traveled and he'd be gone for four to six weeks, Anything I told Mungazi to do, he wanted to do it differently. He listened to everything Ed said, but he didn't have a high respect for women, being an older African man. And I was 26 and from America, and I understood I'm the boss and he's not. Um, so I would tell him and he would say, no, 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 you got to do it this way. And we just didn't get along at all. And Ed came home and I said, we've got to do something about Mungazi. He won't do anything when you're gone. So he had a talk with Mungazi, and Mungazi, he said, now, you guys have got to get along or I'm going to have to get rid of one of you and it can't be my wife. And Mungazi said, I know that's who you want to get rid of, but I know you can't. So we're going to have to work something out. Um, and so then we were coming home on furlough, and so nothing was really settled. 
And so when the thieves came in, they gave him a choice. Uh, you can wake them up and die, or you cannot wake them up and live. And he started yelling and yelling to wake us up. And when they brought the machete down, he turned his head, so the machete went across this way and not on his neck. And so he didn't die. So Ed took him to the hospital and they put in stitches and he came, he wouldn't skip work. So at that point I realized this was a man that I wasn't tolerating, that I wasn't working on a relationship with him, but he was going to die for me. And I started to understand what does it mean when someone will die for you? And after that, I changed my whole outlook, my whole way of seeing Mungazi. And instead of telling him what to do, I said, Mungazi, I need this done. How should we do it? Most of the time, he'd do it the way I wanted in the first place. But if he didn't, he got it done. But it was all depending on how I talked to him. And he, he turned out to be one of the most wonderful people I had ever known. But because he was willing to die for me, my whole outlook changed and our relationship changed. And I asked him, why? Why did you do that? He said, because you're my family. You're my responsibility. You're my people. And then I realized that's what God did. He gave his son to die for us because we're his family. We're his people. And I realized once you really accept the fact that God gave his son to die for you, your relationship with Jesus Christ is going to change. You're going to see things differently. And if Jesus says, go, you're going. If Jesus says, give this up, you'll give it up. If he says, do this, you're going to do it. And you're not going to be afraid and you're not going to worry because as Brett said, you know where your refuge is. You know if you're running into danger because God is pointing you there, that he is your protector and your refuge. Doesn't mean something won't happen. It just means that in the end, you belong to God. In the end, I am in his hands. And that's all because God gave his son because he loves us so much. So when you take communion, really think about what it means with someone who will die for you. I've never had anybody willing to die for me like that or have it even come up, but it does. And the vastness of the importance and the meaning of that is just almost more than we can grasp. But thank you, Jesus, for dying. Thank you, God, for giving your son. It's not just that you and I need to take refuge in Jesus and stand firm, not afraid, stand firm, not angry, not moved by our anger. But there's somebody in your life who needs you to be that person for them. They need to, they need to see the strength that comes from taking refuge in Jesus. That's why Brenda was talking about family, and that's why we call it communion. Because it's not just that we're all coming here seeking Jesus. Somebody is here bringing a weakness. Somebody is here bringing a fear. Someone is, is here who is moved by anger. And by, by joining with us, by, by taking communion together, we're reminding ourselves we're there for you. 
There's no need for you to run. There's no need for you to run off fighting. We'll, we are there for you to support you, to strengthen you, and to offer you the love of Jesus, those righteous deeds that, that we do for one another. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song, and then we'll take together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can say, along with David, that we take refuge in you. Thank you for Brenda being here with us. I, I thank you for the story that she's brought and the heart that she's brought to us. Lord, uh, we do come as a family seeking you and seeking your very best, not just for ourselves, but for each other. Lord, as, as some here come with fears, we come to stand firm together and find refuge for them. Some come who have been moved by anger. Somebody has gotten them angry. Father, we come to lay all of that down and to find those righteous deeds that are done in love, that are done through you. Bless us as we share together today. Bless this bread, bless this cup, and bless this time together as we come as one, offering you our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.